This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Today we will be discussing career narratives of athletes from underserved communities. I'm delighted to have Rob Book from the University of Southern Denmark discussing this topic with me. Rob is working on a PhD project titled Empowering Youth Athletes Against the Odds, Athletic Talent Development Environments in Underserved Communities. In the podcast show notes, you will find links to the recent articles published from the project. And besides the research, Rob has extensive experience of working as a teacher and a coach in one of the most challenging school districts in the United States. We will be discussing some of these experiences also today. So welcome to the podcast, Rob, and thanks for finding the time for our conversation. No problem, Nora. Thank you for having me. You just sent me the prologue of your PhD dissertation Mm -hmm. a week ago. And and when I was reading that, I was like, oh, my God, how can somebody work in in this kind of environment? And you describe your experience as a teacher and and a coach in this school where you have guns, gangs, drugs and crime all over the place. And I was just wondering how you have survived that environment and... (laughs) And you also described that that was certainly not the easiest job you've had in your life. So maybe we can start discussing this sure. background and the work you've done before yeah. becoming a researcher. Yeah, I think that uh, it's it's very relevant um, for my background uh, for my research because that it's it's my experiences as a, as a coach and a teacher in this um, inner city high school that I think it was statistically located in the eighth highest crime rate neighborhood in the U.S. And um, so my time there is sort of what fueled uh, my passion to research um, this topic. And I think it's it's helped me become a better researcher because I really care about the project and th- the research really means a lot to me because of the time and the effort uh, and a big part, you know, 10, 25% of my life was spent working within, in this, within this school. And, um, you know, was it, was it challenging? Abs- absolutely. Um, the stress, um, you know, that came with it for me on a professional level was to the point where it was actually physical health ailments, stress-related physical health, uh, heart-related issues that actually, you know, in the prime of my life forced me to leave because I just, my body couldn't operate in that environment uh, much longer. So I have absolute admiration for teachers and coaches who can do that for 30, 35 years. Um, I did the time that I could and 
then I had to to move on, and that was part of my journey was to move on through there. Um, but I but I hold my time at the school is one of the most important and meaningful things that I've that I've ever done. Um, but to consider the fact, you know, on the one hand, working there, of course, was was a challenge, but you know, I got to go home every day and to think about, you know, the, the students that I serviced, mostly they were high school ages. So 14, 15 years old till 18, you know, they, they just walked out the door and maybe, you know, walked a couple hundred meters to their home and, and that, their environment was entirely this challenging underserved community. It wasn't, you know, I got to leave and, and go away and, and a lot of them never did. And, um, yeah, it's it's hard to believe it unless you're in it and, and see it. It's I don't think about it sometimes a lot in my normal life, and but then when I when I wrote that prologue to my thesis that I sent to you, and you were the first person actually to read it, all of these things come back into my mind, and I just think, my God, like this this reality for for these people, these kids is uh, yeah, it's hard, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and you're right that you certainly stood out by being pretty much the only white person around and coming from this very different family background and different different reality, as you put it. You go home and, and, and you will have a very different life outside of the school, whereas this is very much the reality where the young children live also, like their whole life and not just the school day. Yes. So, yeah, that's that's really quite an experience. If you if you think of how you started that work and and what pushed you to do that, even if I'm mm. sure you were aware that that will be extremely challenging. It's an interesting question, and I actually reflected about this lots of times. And I think the beginning of it probably well, part of it came. I actually my my mom kept some things of when I was little and. I remember there was a project I think I had to do for school when I was eight or nine years old. And okay, what do, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I and I always said I wanted to be a teacher. I said that at eight or nine years old. Um, so part of it always was that I wanted to be a teacher. Sports was a big part of my life, so coaching and, and being a physical education teacher was part of what I wanted to do. But I didn't. I did not end up in such an underserved school by accident. That was an intentional an intentional choice. And I think it goes a lot to my upbringing with my parents. And uh, my father was um, a minister growing up in a Lutheran church and uh, service work was always a very important part of, of his life and my mother's life. And once he retired uh, formally from the ministry up in Canada, him and my mother moved to Atlanta specifically to uh, open up a homeless outreach ministry, which I did for, I think, eight or nine years. Um, so they were always working with uh, marginalized and oppressed groups of people, and I spent summer working with them. And I guess it's just been ingrained in me to to use some of the the blessings and gifts that I've been given in my life, and to try to to use my life in a service oriented way. So that is why I particularly chose to work in an in an inner city underserved uh, school, which. You know, I think in your mind, maybe you think it's going to be one way and, and <laughs> then the reality comes. And in some ways, I mean, it was absolutely amazing. It was just amazing. The, the relationships I still have to this day with my former students were incredible. 
Um, but then in other ways, it was it was more challenging than I than I ever could have imagined. I think uh, certainly culturally, as you touched upon, being you know the only there was a handful of white teachers. I think in my time there, eight years, I saw mm-hmm. one one white student the entire time. It was ninety nine point five percent African American or Black students and a small Hispanic population. So making that cultural transition actually was was a big one. I never really thought, you know, I lived in Thailand before and France and different places. And by comparison, that was a lot easier than it was for me just driving, you know, three kilometers to the, to the school where, from where I lived. Um, that was the hardest cultural transition I've ever had to make uh, doing that. Yeah. And we'll talk a bit later about your research. Sure. And you've also looked at this cultural transition part in in these athletes journeys who come come from these underserved communities you mentioned that this work even if it was challenging it was something that was very meaningful for you and and when we are talking about meaning and meaningfulness in this podcast it would be nice to also reflect on how you view the role of sport and physical education in these young people's lives do you do you think that that was maybe something that brought some meaning to their lives? Yes, it, ab- it absolutely did. And I think that, you know, some of my, some of my research, I suppose, at this moment talks, it does focus a little bit more on the elite sport aspect, but that's was never really my primary focus or, or interest even, and, and especially not when I was, when I was teaching and coaching at my old school. Um, the philosophy of all of the teachers that were there was given given just the challenging environments that these these kids students lived in sports we knew sports was a way to to keep them focused positively on something else gave them something to look forward to gave them structure taught them a lot of a lot of things that might be the only thing that they have in the, in their day to be honest to uh to keep them from making some poor decisions and it wasn't only sports. Sports was just one way. We, it, it just needed to be something. It could have been music. It could have been a book or journal club. You know, it could have been anything, theater, arts. It was a very intentional function of our school was to have programs in place um, for that purpose. And I know with, with, uh, with my students, especially with my athletes, you know, keeping them involved in my program was um, – was pivotal for a lot of them. And, but at the same time, getting, getting these young athletes and to, to buy into the concept of what it meant to be part of a team was sometimes the hardest part. Um, as I mentioned, I think in the prologue that you read, you know, the, the, the most talented athletes, most of the time I couldn't even get them to come to practice. I couldn't get them to buy into the team concept. So a lot of the time it's almost, some of the ones with the most talented and brightest futures never, never even discovered uh, that avenue, which was always a little bit sad. Yeah. Mm. What would be some of those memories from that time? Or your your research is a lot about stories. What would mm-hmm. be? Let's pick one story <laughs> of, of one student and okay. who you worked with. That is something that is important for you. And, and well, I think from that I think the the important one, and, and I and I I guess the reason it came to my mind um, 
in the prologue that I that I've written that you read was about my two former athletes, and I, and I think it's a meaningful story, um, and it goes towards the very first the very first game that I ever coached. Um, so I was I'm 40 now, I think. So I would have been maybe at the time maybe I was 30 years old, and I just started my the first the first year um, as a full time physical education teacher and coach at the school. And I was coaching the junior varsity team, which would have been uh, kids 15, 16 years old. And so I had my team. We were training in the, in the fall and um, making great progress. And our first game was going to be an away game, and it was going to be against the strongest team in the city. It was a high school that was in a very affluent area. Lots of money, lots of resources, um, and they were always historically. We just knew it was going to be a tough game. So, you know, my father was my assistant coach at the time because I had nobody to help me, and he was just generous enough to dedicate all of his time when I was there. He was my assistant coach in every sport I coached, and he was always like the team father. So it was great to have him as a part of you know my journey and my time there. Um, so anyway, we. We're driving to the to the game and on the team bus, and our players are all excited, and you know they think they're gonna beat them. Like, and I'm just thinking, okay, I hope the game is just close. That was my only my only hope. Um, so you know, we go to the locker room before the game. I talk to them, and I put the jerseys in the middle of the of the floor of the locker room in a in a Tupperware box. And me and my dad walk out of the locker room for a couple minutes just to talk about what should I say in the pregame speech? And all of a sudden we hear some yelling, shouting coming from within the locker room. We, we run in and the whole team is huddled around each other. They all stop. And apparently there was a fight between my two best players. My point guard and the center got in a, a fist fight and they were friends, uh, but they got in a fight yeah. because they both wanted the same Jersey number. And, you know, so there I am as a first-year coach, my first game, and in my context of what I played sports, I mean, this stuff just this didn't happen. No one prepared me for this. What do you What do you do when you're playing your first game and your two best players get a, get in a fight in the locker room? I mean, what? I mean, I had no idea what to do. So I, I had I had to do something, and I ultimately told them they weren't going to dress for the game. They left. We ended up getting beat by fifty points. It was it was embarrassing for everybody involved, the team, it was just totally psyched out. And so the reason I tell the story was though, is because the two players that were involved because of what happened afterwards was so telling of, of, of what the outcomes were for these two athletes. So the point guard, um, he, his mother was, so she met with me the next day and I explained to her what the, what, what I was going to do. And I said that I, I wanted to kick him off the team and she was begging and pleading that this was the only thing he had. So I said, okay. I said, if he, if he comes to practice every day and practices, practices with us every day, I'll give him his Jersey back and he can play after a Christmas break. Give the same deal to the other player, the center. And basically what happens was the center, he came maybe to a couple practices and then he just disappeared. He just left transferred schools and I never heard from him again until I saw him on the news committing an armed robbery um, in his local community with a gun 
and likely, as far as I know, will probably be in jail the rest of his life for that crime. Um, the point guard, as far as I know, I mean, it was a hard, it was a hard four years for him in high school. I talked to his mother all the time, sometimes almost every day, just trying to make sure he was focused. I was sort of her eyes into his life, and he graduated and he went on to college, and his life is, from what I can just tell, very, very different. Um, so I tell that story because it just shows how easy, how the fine line between how these two young men, how their lives turned out. And, and if the one boy, maybe if I hadn't, you know, so I think all the time about, should I have tried harder with the other kid that I kicked off the team? Should I have kept him? Should I have worked to, to keep him? Because I'm, because his decision to his, him not playing had these ultimate repercussions and it was hard to live with that. And I, and I think about that stuff a lot now, even as uh, you know, 10 yeah. years later. Yeah, it must have been a very powerful experience and mm. what you then talked about your research. And I mean, our personal experience is certainly uh, shaping what we find as worthy topics of, of research. Yeah, let's, let's then move on from this personal story to mm -hmm. this research context. So sure. you stopped working at the school and you carry all these memories and these doubts in, in your head. So maybe share a little bit about how you then uh, framed your research topic and research questions and what you wanted to achieve with this PhD research. Right. Yeah. So then, uh, so then ultimately when I decided to do the PhD, I really wanted, I, I preferred the, first of all, I just preferred the, the European model of a PhD towards the US or Canadian one. I liked Uh, the University of Southern Denmark and my supervisors, Christopher Henriksen, who's here, and Natalia Stambalova, who is at Homestead, are just, you know, two of the best in the world at athletic talent development environments and looking at career pathways for Natalia at Homestead. And I realized they were just going to be great people to guide me to guide me through this. And I also wanted to remove myself a bit from the situation. So I geographically was sort of farther away and could look at this problem from a different Uh, a different perspective. So the the project itself was partially was a, a career pathway project where the first part was where I interviewed 10 professional athletes who came from similar comparable low socioeconomic underserved upbringings, but were able to make it to the top of uh, professional sports. So that was the criteria. It ended up sort of through snowball sampling that they all ended up being uh, black athletes. Eight of them played basketball and two were NFL football. Then the stories were ultimately just so compelling that that's when we, we delved into this narrative uh, investigation, which wasn't part of the, the project, nor was the cultural transition project that I also had worked on. Then right. as, it, as it developed... The second part, which I'm moving quite almost completed with now, where is where I interviewed, I wanted to get stakeholders' perspectives on what they thought about these underserved athletic talent development environments, what I call UATDEs, and uh -huh. to get their perspective. And so we talked to people who worked in similar environments that I did. We went all the way to the top and talked to some NFL and NBA coaches to get their perspectives on sort of what, what this means. Um, and then the last part was what I'm working on now was actually a case study where I went into um, an urban community college uh, back in the U.S. in a large urban area, and I'm doing a, 
a case study. So basically, my 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 whole my whole concept is that, and this is what goes with uh, my supervisor's holistic ecological approach to athletic talent development, is that the entire environment in which someone lives impacts that talent environment. So it's not just what goes on in the gym or in the ice rink or on the field. It's it's the surrounding area also can impact um, what goes on with, within a sporting environment. And, and we see that, I saw that every day in my work. And what I'm starting to realize from, especially from the stakeholders we talk to, is that the sports piece is very important and you want the athletes, you need the specialized training to, to work with them. But but they've all said, and this is my personal opinion, is that unless you deal with the social and the psychological challenges that come from living in these underserved environments, the sports stuff is secondary because you can't, yeah. like I had described before, I couldn't get the best athletes to even join my team. So what does it matter how good they are or how much sports skill I have and knowledge if I can't, if I can't get them there and make them psychologically feeling safe to a point where I can move from there. So I think that's a big piece of my, uh, of my research that I'm trying to bring to light and trying to flesh out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important work and we already had like if we think of research on athletes careers we have like several decades of research right. as well and and a lot of work on these pathways but at least i haven't seen <laughs> this work on on athletes that come from these underserved communities so is your project almost like the first of its kind or do we do we have something on this for you to build upon mm. well in my I think if you were to ask somebody else, perhaps Natalia or Christopher, they would say that I'm the first one to look at this. I don't think uh-huh. that that's maybe, I think that's, um, it just makes me feel uncomfortable saying something like that. But, yeah. uh, but I think that there's uh, Massey and Williams have done quite a few studies recently um, where they've looked, they've looked at it a little bit differently, not so much at, at an athletic talent development environment perspective, but they looked at, underserved and traumatic environments in the U.S. And um, a lot of these have been published in, uh, let's see, the uh, QRSE has published a couple. And, and they're looking at things similar about how trauma can sort of impact development, but but a different way, not in a sports-specific way, in a career pathway way. So I do draw a lot, I do draw, draw upon their research quite a bit because they also made this connection um, talking about social capital and how sports uh, within these underserved communities, it can be a great way to extend that, you know, the social cultural capital, if you're looking at yeah. sort of Bourdieu's social theory. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think that there have been some other studies that I also draw upon a lot. I draw upon the Komatova study where she, uh, she interviewed some professional European basketball coaches and talking about their perspectives, working with multicultural teams, and a lot of that came, a lot of that focus was upon these coaches, mostly European, dealing with American, often black, European basketball players, and some of the stereotypes that they would have, and different kind of positives and negatives, I suppose, or strengths and weaknesses of, of integrating these teams. So I look upon that a lot. Um, but yeah, overall, there's this is sort of a little bit of, of a new of a new area. And a lot of it though comes to, you know, if you look at the studies that are available in a European context of, you know, athletic talent development and career pathway research, I mean, it's, it's everywhere, especially in the Nordic countries, you know, yourself, you've done a lot of research in this way. 
you know, yeah. Tatiana Ruba yeah. and, you know, there's tons, there's tons of stuff out there. But if you go into the U.S. context, it's like it's sort of given their philosophy of athletic talent development, which is sort of this talent identification where you have just mass participation at the bottom. And then the top people, you know, the Olympic Committee and these professional teams, of course, are very organized in the way they develop their talent. But they're not so concerned about how it's developing or how these athletes are being supported when they're 10, 12, 15 years old. It doesn't really matter because in that kind of model, the top athletes will eventually get there. So yeah. there's just nothing there. I, I haven't been able to find any kind of qualitative studies that look at athletic environments mm-hmm. specifically within a Europe, an American context in general, let alone within an underserved uh, perspective. Right. Yeah, so no doubt there is going to be a lot of novelty and, and, and value of your work also expanding on this diversity of pathways. And, and there is a big trend of emphasizing cultural issues when we under, when we look at athlete development that, you know, different cultural contexts have different practices mm-hmm. and we have different structural conditions. And, and I mean, in the Nordic countries, when you look at talent programs and athlete talent development. I mean, most of the athletes who are in these programs are typically middle-class white athletes. So, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about us as qualitative researchers. We are very aware of this uh, relationship that we develop with our research participants and and the difficulty of understanding the other person's world, especially if we are living in quite different different worlds. And one of your articles is also starting with this remark that you as a researcher are sitting in your office mm. in Denmark and you are doing this interview with an athlete in in the US who is living in a completely different social and cultural context. So how how was it for you to develop this relationship with your participants and trust and having them to share all their stories with you yeah i think i think that is such a it's such a good question and it's something that i reflect and reflected upon a a lot and i think first of all i will say that without without the experiences that i had in in teaching and in coaching in that environment if if I didn't have that, I don't think there was any way I could have interviewed and conversed the way that I did in these interviews with my participants because it gave me, it just gave me a comfort, a knowledge and, you know, an understanding of maybe at least what their experiences are like. So what I, what I drop, what the word I basically come to is, is empathy um, because, you know, of course, I of course I don't know what it's like to to wake up in in their shoes. I don't know what it's like to be in anybody's shoes except for my own. And but but it doesn't mean that I can't empathize and and feel that I have a, a decent understanding of uh, of their experience. And and I think that there's something about that 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 must have made my athletes, or sorry, my participants feel comfortable because, um, and maybe part of it is just my personality. I think socially, social, being being with people, talking to people, that is what's very important to me and it's what I live for. And yeah. so I, maybe they could feel that, but I know that like 
the biggest way I can say that I knew I was able to build trust was how afterwards. So it's not like I've lost touch with a lot of these people. Like they've, they've connected with me on social media. They wish me happy birthday. They'll send me messages, um, comment on a picture when I had the birth of my son, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're there in my life. And I think there would, you know, it just feels like there, it almost feels like they knew that because I had, I at least was a coach before also that I sort of understood their world a little bit because of where I coached. And so I think it made them comfortable that we share that understanding. Whereas if I didn't have that, I think it would have been pretty tough for me to gain that. So I guess, of course, I'm not an insider, but the knowledge did help. I think is about the best answer I can give. Yeah. And you also told them about your previous work as a coach and, and, and a teacher in, in this community. Yes. So. And I would say, yeah. and I would say though, too, if people are looking for say specific tips or something, you know, what, what I did was I, I felt I started out using like a semi-structured interview guide yeah. and I realized it just didn't work. It just, you could tell when I asked the questions, the changes in the turns, it just didn't strike them as natural. And I didn't think, and, and they, so I switched very quickly to just an, an unstructured interview and I started, you know, and I always started by telling them, yeah, about my life and what I did and my experience and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then I just offered them to just tell me about their life. Tell me about yourself. Tell me your most important thing. And I got some very interesting responses and the conversation went, it went so well, it, it's it's almost hard for me to go back to some kind of structured <laughs> interview format because I just feel that it's just more genuine and sincere when I do it this way. Yeah. And you mentioned that kind of this narrative analysis approach mm-hmm. was not something that you necessarily started with, but was was it something that became like more and more uh, appealing as as you went along with your interviewing? Yes, and I think that so the narrative was sort of funny because so so I think my supervisor was quite he was quite shocked and surprised at the data that I was getting through these interviews for the first you know I interviewed the, these ten athletes and. He was just reading them and it just, to me, I think it seems so striking in the contrast between the data that he would get when he would interview some of his, say, elite sailors or the elite orienteers. They were very short, not very descriptive, just just not overly interesting is what he would say. And then he then he saw these stories, these interviews that went on for ages and he just said, well, you need to do a narrative. And he said, it'll be easy. Well, that wasn't the case whatsoever. <laughs> it was the opposite of easy, I think. Um, yeah. but it was fascinating to, to learn about stories and the available, you know, obviously I talked, talked a lot with one, with one of the best, Fred Smith, and, uh, got a lot of guidance and insight from his work and from conversations with him. Um, and, uh, you know, found it very interesting that how they sort of framed, you know, how they sort of framed their life as, you know, this, as you had even mentioned, what was it like the sort of rags to riches or overcoming, you know, the odds kind of, uh, kind of narrative, um, which I entitled, uh, a sink or, sink or swim narrative, which I drew from, uh, some older work, Amy Lee, Lee look, I'm going to pronounce that wrong. Uh, I think it was 1994. She had that idea. Yeah. Right. So stories are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Your personal story, your research participant story, I thought it was so interesting when you said that uh, for your supervisor, these stories that you were hearing were uh, so 
interesting and different from mm. from the stories that he has heard from from the athletes in that he has interviewed so let's talk a little bit about what stands out in these stories that you heard what what are the parts that you find the most mm. fascinating or, or interesting uh, i think that's a uh, that's a tough question to answer i think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that I mean, they were they were compelling and deeply moving, and you know, of course, of course, you would I would uh, gain just a massive appreciation. I was just in in awe of of what they were of almost like what the human what the human being can endure if that's what they're forced to navigate through. To you know, it's they're dealt a certain hand, and they were just able to to keep persevering, persevering, to keep moving forward in, in and despite some extremely challenging circumstances. So you would hear things, you know, I would, when I would ask them, you know, okay, tell me about the most significant moment of your life. So one athlete said, you know, he was born, he, he met his dad two times. He was born when his dad was in jail for murder. Never saw him after that. Another athlete said, um, when I was 12 years old, my mother just, up and abandoned me and left him alone in Detroit by himself at 12 years old. And so you just, you just think, and I, and I, and I look at my experience with, you know, loving, loving parents and a warm environment. And, and then you one, and then you just think about how every life is different and how some people's lives are just so much more challenging. And so you look at all of these things that, you know, they have different circumstances and how they're able to, to still make it through. I think there were big, um, they all had people, they had different, different things got them, different events got them out of that environment. For instance, some, a lot of them were gifted athletically. They were tall, they were strong. And so they were, sometimes they were, they were seen maybe at 15 years old and, and, and given a scholarship to a private school, moving them out of their community. So you think about, okay, if they weren't good at sports, that never would have happened. So you think about all of the other all of the other children and kids who are maybe just very gifted in other ways, but they're not going to get this free pass, this free opportunity to to better their life in that way. Um, there was a lot of luck involved. Every single one of these athletes had opportunities, many of them, where they could have been killed or could have ended up in jail. One guy told me that he was around 15 and him and his friends were all committing these armed robberies all the time. And the only reason that he didn't get caught when his other two friends did was because he happened to be at basketball practice that day and they all went to jail for like 10 years. So there was some luck, of course, that's in anybody's life, but there was a lot of big luck moments. Um, and then I think that some things that came out of these stories um, was, I guess the way then, and this goes back and then to your narrative question that I think you want to maybe touch upon a little bit is, is the way that they described their life story was it wasn't this high performance narrative that you often see in research. You see Carlos and Douglas are very popular with that particular narrative where and you see a lot of other studies where a lot of these elite athletes, like their whole life is focused entirely around being the best in sports and they sacrifice relationships and all sorts of things to become the best. That just wasn't anything that came within what I heard. And so what, what came was the sink or swim whereby they had many opportunities where they could have sank to the bottom. Life could have gone a lot different, but they were able to 
keep moving forward and eventually made it uh, to the top. But that narrative is interesting because so when I was writing that paper and was going through the revision process, my initial draft had it that, it, that I said something that it was surprising that this was a narrative. Well, one of the reviewers said, he or she said, actually, this is very unsurprising because this is the narrative that is in the American sporting context. You, you go anywhere on TV, you see exposés about the athlete who was poor and now all of a sudden they beat the odds and now they're successful. Like Americans love that. They love that story. So that's the interesting thing I think about narrative is we use these available frameworks to sort of frame our experiences. And I think it's a really good example of that, that that was a very available narrative for them in a very unsurprising way. And I think I actually agree now that it was a, a very unsurprising way that they would talk about their lives like that. Yeah, that was a very good <laughs> spot on by the, by the <laughs> reviewer to point yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think it's so important for us to keep developing and, and discussing and also challenging this um, narrative typology in sport that certainly it has helped us a lot in, in thinking about athletes' careers and, and, and this work on performance, discovery and relational narrative by Carlos and Douglas. Mm -hmm. I, that's been like a very helpful framework for, for us to yes. think about career narratives. But yeah, so as researchers, it's always a little... We are always a little bit hesitant to say which narrative is a good narrative and, oh, that one mm. is a bad narrative. But maybe you can reflect a little bit on what are the possibilities and what are the possible problems with this sink or swim narrative. Is it is it a good story for you to tell? Yeah, I think, and this is what I, this is what I sort of thought, and, and I'm glad you gave me this question before we talked gave me a little chance to reflect yesterday about it and i think that you know the the, po the positive i think is that it does in a way i suppose it it keeps giving people some kind of hope that they could possibly get a better life experience in some kind of capacity so it's like if i look at all the students that i worked with in service all those years and I always would hear them talk, you know, I'm going to be an NBA player. I'm going to be an NFL player. I'm going to be a professional rapper or whatever. It's like they all had these, these dreams. And a lot of them were very grandiose dreams and unrealistic dreams. But I feel that in this, in that environment for so many of them, when, when there is so little hope, you need to have some kind of hope to know that it is possible in some way. So I suppose that would be the, the positive spin but when i look at it from the other okay is it not a good narrative well it's pretty it would be really great in this world if we didn't have to have that kind of narrative because it really negates like, it, like a lot of these like social and political forces that place so many people in oppressed positions in the first place so it's like if if we were in you know if you look at a country like denmark or finland or somewhere like that are they are there going to be as many rags to riches kind of sink or swim narratives? Probably not, because not as many people are in that disadvantaged position to begin with. So I think that's a little bit of the sad part. And also, it is also I also find another part of it that's a little bit dangerous is that okay, it's nice, you know, I interviewed 10, 10 athletes who all had this typology and you know they made it to the top of their sport and that's great. 
But what about every hundred or every thousand other people just like them that didn't make it? You know, what, what happened to them? The one, you know, the guy on my player who ended up doing the armed robbery who had the talent. He's one of the best players I ever coached. And, you know, what, what about them? So it's a little bit sad to think about that as well. Um, so those are some of our reflections about that narrative. Yeah, I think already what you also mentioned about the stories that you heard in, in the research context that, you know, so many points in, in these people's lives, in these athletes' lives where they could have easily sank mm-hmm. and, and these moments when they could have ended up in prison for 10 years, but they were happening to be in the basketball practice right? and these moments of luck. So I think that's always the danger. And, and also in your research, you are showing these stories of the people who made it, who, who mm-hmm. became elite athletes. But just like you say, we can always ask how many of these young people are there who had the same ambition, but they, didn't make it so yeah right thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research podcast if you like the show make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on twitter this podcast is made possible by listeners like you thank you for your support if you found value in the show we would really appreciate the rating Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.